0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction On our study today. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. As we study the episodes that you have revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation, it is within the narrative portions of your word, the historical sections of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, that we have various pictures given to us that are designed to teach us about your character, about your righteousness, your justice, your love. These are designed to help us to come to a greater understanding of, of who you are, though you are at a certain level incomprehensible to us. There are many things that we can comprehend, though not exhaustively, about your character or your essence. Sometimes, Father, as we study things that you have done in history, it leaves us with a question as to just how this really fits in with who you are. And it is through a study of these events that we come to a, a more precise understanding of these important attributes that you have revealed to us related to your righteousness and your justice and your love. Father, as we study today, we pray that you would help us to focus, to concentrate, to think about these things in perhaps ways we haven't thought about these before. That as the Apostle Paul writes, you would open the eyes of our soul that we might be enlightened, that we might come to a greater appreciation of who you are and how you work in the lives of your people and of your faithfulness and of your love and grace toward us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 8 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 8. Many of us have faced various personal problems, adversity, hardship, difficulty in life, times when some of us have gone through periods of time when we feel like we are the victims of injustice. For some of us, that injustice has been far greater than others. At other times, we wrestle with questions that are of a more profound nature as we observe history and we look around the world Before us, and we see events such as the earthquake in Haiti, and we wonder, as uh, many skeptics of Christianity do, how can a loving God allow such a thing to happen? We think through the horrible evil that took place during the Second World War in the Holocaust, and again we ask the question, how can a loving God allow such evil to continue we look at other events that relate to famines and wars and times of tremendous economic catastrophe when many people who do not have any direct input into these events uh, suffer incredible consequences the loss of all that they have the loss of health the loss even of life and again we wonder how does a loving God allow this to happen Now, the scriptures give us an answer, but not in a simple form, because God has revealed himself to us in his word in terms of how he works in different situations and circumstances throughout history, so that we are forced to think a little more deeply and profoundly about this issue and about who God is and about his love and his grace and his righteousness. And this morning we're going to begin with sort of a prologue to a section in Second Kings that probably raises that question related to the love of God and his righteousness and evil in profound ways for people. A section of scripture I doubt that many of you have spent a whole lot of time reading for personal blessing and uh, spiritual Enlightenment, because it's a, it's a bloody section. It is a, these three chapters, chapters uh, 8, 9, and 10 in Second Kings, are chapters that remind me very much of the end of the, uh, really all of the Godfather films. I loved watching those films. I couldn't wait to see the first one when it came out. And they all had the same basic formula. They go through and build the conflict between the various, uh, members of the mafia and how they're executing their vengeance, their personal vendettas against their enemies, leading to this, uh, climactic scene at the end of the film where you see just an, a wide array of their enemies being, uh, slaughtered in one form or another. And it just, they just end with this, with this bloodbath. Frankly, I think they are a marvelous study in, in evil and how evil will destroy an individual. But that's another doctrine and another issue for another time. But what we see here in these chapters of 2 Kings is the same kind of thing, except it is God that is executing his vengeance upon his enemies in the northern kingdom of Israel as well as the southern kingdom of Israel. And when we come to think of what the Bible says about vengeance, we often wonder just how can we worship a God who is a God of vengeance. As I read in the opening psalm this morning, in Psalm 94, is a prayer for the vengeance of God. And the writer of the psalm is uh, articulating a question that is at the heart of this whole issue, and that is how long, O Lord, how long will the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? How long are you, O Lord, going to postpone your justice? And what is the connection between justice and vengeance? This is an important aspect that we'll have to address. But at the very beginning, we need to take time to just kind of do a flyover of this these chapters. There's a lot of new names here. There are similar names. You have a Joram or Jehoram. Sometimes he's called Joram, sometimes Jehoram, who's a king in the northern kingdom of Israel. Then you have a king in the southern kingdom of Israel, and his name is Joram and sometimes Jehoram. Then you have a, another king named Ah. Isaiah in both northern and southern kingdoms and so it can get really confusing if you don't kind of write a chart out next to your Bible as you read this and make sure you understand who is being talked about and then the person that is chosen to uh, execute the vengeance of God the justice of God in this section is a man named Jehu who is the son of Jehoshaphat but that's not the Jehoshaphat who was the king of the southern kingdom that we studied last time. So I just want to make sure everybody's confused now so that you recognize that we have to really focus a little bit here or we're just going to get lost in the high weeds and go home scratching our heads as to what the message was about uh, this morning. Now, to understand what happens now in these chapters you must understand what transpired 15, 14 or 15 years earlier in a crucial event in the life of the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah has gone to be with the Lord and been replaced by his successor, Elisha, by the time we get to chapter 9 of Second Kings. But this starts with a prophecy that God gives to Elijah back in 1 Kings 19.15. Remember, the context is that the northern kingdom of Israel has just absolutely been overwhelmed by the horrible fertility cult, the worship of Baal, all of the horrible things that went along with that, from child sacrifice to all of the Uh, sexual immorality that took place in the worship centers uh, for the worship of Baal, and that is the background, and the people have come under divine discipline, and it is Elijah who is the one who has announced this. And after his great victory on Mount Carmel, Elijah succumbed to some depression, took off uh, trying to escape the uh, vendetta, personal vengeance of King Ahab in the north, and he headed south. He comes to a cave on Mount Horeb, uh, Mount Sinai, down in the south, and it is there that he has this conversation with God about his particular role, purpose, and ministry. And it is in that context that God uh, gives him certain instructions. And this is located in 1 Kings 19:15 through 18. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, that is located in the modern uh, nation of Syria, what was called Aram, some modern translations also call it Syria, uh, the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place." It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now what we see here is the announcement by God some 15 years earlier before, from our passage of how he is going to execute justice and righteousness on the wicked in the northern kingdom of Israel. But as we have studied in the last uh, eight chapters, what we have focused on in the ministry of Elisha, who is who was Elijah's successor, is the emphasis on grace. God's grace always precedes his judgment. But what this also focuses for us is a very important are some very important doctrines related to the very essence of God. And so here I'm going to put up a, a chart here of the basic attributes of God. He is sovereign. He is righteous. He's just. Those two words are crucial in both Hebrew and Greek. They come from the same root words. In Hebrew, it's the root tzedak. In Greek, it's the root related to dikaios, or justice, and it depends on the focus as to whether it's talking about, uh, the passage is talking about the uh, righteousness as the as the standard of God's character, that he is absolutely righteous, or whether it is talking about the application of that standard to his creatures, which is justice. And then we are told in Scripture that God is love. Now, often... Uh, theologians have joined righteousness and justice together, and uh, as, as together they represent the holiness of God. Now, what's interesting in Scripture is that God is specifically stated to be holy. God is holy. He is also specifically stated to be love. But in our modern conceptions of both righteousness and justice, and in our modern conceptions of love, we often Run, uh, foul of what the scriptures teach. We have these, uh, very watered down, diluted ideas of both righteousness and love that when we take those ideas, those distorted, warped ideas that we pick up from our culture and we apply those to what happens in the scripture, then we look at things that happen in, for example, in these chapters and we wonder, how can this be a God of love? The problem is we've got a distorted view of what love is. It's sort of like when you were a young child, hopefully, similar to my experience when I was young, and my dad would say, well, he would punish me, and he would get the belt out, and he would give me a spanking It was not abusive. Some people automatically think that any kind of physical corporeal punishment is abusive. That's because you start with the wrong presuppositions. Scripture clearly teaches that corporeal punishment is valid and important, but it's not abusive. It is done in love. But see, our modern culture wants to say that you can't physically punish a child and be loving, that those are mutually exclusive. Well, if we adopt those definitions of justice and discipline, and love, then you really can't understand the Bible at all because you're operating on totally wrong ideas of these important qualities. What the Scripture shows us is for love to be love, for love to be real love, it has to conform to righteousness. Love that has no righteousness at the core of it has no integrity and is just nothing more than silly, superficial sentimentality. Righteousness, on the other hand, that is not tempered by love, can just be abusive and tyrannical. And within the character of God, these attributes fit together in a perfectly consistent whole. And so we see these attributes, God's righteousness, His justice, and His love coming together. And this forms the essence of God's integrity. He is righteous, He is justice, He is absolute love, And he is absolute truth. And so we go to God to find out the answers and to understand what these somewhat abstract qualities truly mean. And in order to understand that, God has given us these pictures of these various events in the Scripture so that we can have something more than simply a superficial understanding of what righteousness, justice, and love uh, actually are and so we come to this section and we are going to be introduced to a very um very bloody a series of very uh, bloody scenes that are directed by god and this is done in love it is just as when i was a child and my father would say well i have to punish you and this is done from love and as a kid i would think this doesn't feel very loving We also remember in the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 12 that God says that the scripture says for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And we, when we are at the disciplined end of God's uh, chastening, it doesn't feel like God loves us very much. So maybe we really do need to go back and kind of massage and tweak our understanding of love and justice so that we not only have an accurate understanding of what these are in the objective realm of the character of God, but then so we can use that in our own relationships, sometimes in... As parents, sometimes as children, sometimes as those who are in, in marriages, we have to understand what real love is, and real love is that which is consistent with an absolute standard of righteousness and justice. Now before we can really take all of that apart, we just have to understand what happens in these chapters, and, and frankly this, is a lot of material, and I'm going to just hit the high points this morning to sort of summarize this and to try to create a an impression upon you as to what happens here and how God is having to deal with the evil and sin that is destroying and eating away at his people, uh, the Israelites. So the chapter, the section begins in chapter 8. Verse, verse 7, and the first event that occurs is has to do with the violent assassination of King Ben-Hadad II of Syria by his trusted assistant or aide, uh, Hazael. We don't know his exact role, but he is the primary advisor to Ben-Hadad and in this set of circumstances we see how god in his sovereignty orchestrates the situation but it is hazael who takes advantage of the illness of ben-hadad and uses that as a cover for his murder and this is this will then bring hazael to a position of authority and rulership in syria and the core issue here is what Elisha focuses on as he uh, has a vision that is recorded there in, uh, in reference in verses 11 and 12 as he sees all of the horror and violence that Hazael will bring upon the children of Israel and the, the numbers of infants that will be uh, dashed to death uh, during the time of his violence and his invasions and assaults on the northern kingdom. And this is part of God's discipline on the northern kingdom of Israel for their idolatry. The second uh, event that then occurs has to do with the rise of Jehoram to the throne in the southern kingdom of of Israel. In the southern kingdom of Israel, and I want to put a slide up here before we get much further so that you don't lose uh, too much ground here. There we go. On the left, you have a chart of the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. On the right, you have a chart of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. The left, you have the house of Omri. Omri was the father of Ahab, who was married to Jezebel, the evil, wicked uh, queen who came from Syria and introduced Baal worship into the, southern, the, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel. And they had a number of children. The eldest was... Uh, Ahaziah who became the king when Ahab died he did not last but a year or so and then he's replaced by his brother Joram who reigns for 12 years and then the sister Athaliah is married off to um, Jehoram the king of the southern kingdom so through Athaliah this horrible Baal worship gets introduced into the southern kingdom uh, Jehoram and Ahaziah His son are evil kings in the southern kingdom, and so God is going to have to deal with this horrible malignancy of idolatry and Baalism in the kingdom of Israel. So the first king that he's going to deal with is going to be Jehoram in 2 Kings chapter 8. And Jehoram is truly an evil, evil king. He reigns for eight years. And he, we're told that he walks in the ways of, of Israel, in the house of Ahab. Remember, he is married to Athaliah. Even though Jehoram was a, I mean, Jehoshaphat, his father was a godly king, he made some tragic, devastating decisions, one of which was to enter into an alliance with Ahab, which was sealed by the marriage of his son Jehoram to the evil, wicked Athaliah. She's just as, as evil as her as her mother. And so, 2 Chronicles tells us that God sends a message to Jehoram via Elijah. It must have been just before Elijah's death, where Jehoram is, is warned that God will bring judgment upon him and that he will die a horrible death. A horrible death. He will have some sort of vile intestinal disease that will last two years. And upon his death, he will go through painful, excruciating misery as his intestines actually come out of his body. It's a lovely description. God's judgment upon Jehoram. Remember, he is being judged because of his association with the house of Ahab. Now, the key verse that he's going to explain Everything that we talk about in these chapters is what, what is stated to Jehu when Elisha sends his his assistant to anoint Jehu. And in 2 Kings 9, uh, Jehu is given his orders from the prophet. And in verse 6, the prophet states, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of Yahweh, over the people of Israel. So this is a direct order from God to Jehu. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And so what we see here is God is going to bring this judgment. He just wipes out anybody who is related to Ahab, anyone who could lay claim to the throne of Ahab. And our question is, why does God the Holy Spirit want us to know all of this that is going on? And so the first description of judgment that we have is in those verses of um, which I just read of uh, 16 to 24 dealing with the Uh, death of Jehoram Jehoram then will be replaced on the throne by his brother I mean by his son Ahaziah who is not only evil but he is a coward and he only lasts a year and he will be also brutally brutally murdered but as the description goes in the text we go from Jehoram who is Jehoram of Judah to Joram of Israel, Joram of Israel, now he has been the king since about chapter two of Second Kings, and he it follows in the footsteps of his father um, Ahab. and so he is going to be also judged, and this is the focal point of the ninth chapter. And what happens is Joram of Israel is going to convince his relative uh, Ahaziah in the south to join him in a battle against the Syrians or the Arameans. And so they're going to go to battle at Ramoth-Gilead. And one of the leading generals at Ramoth-Gilead is Jehu, who is identified In verse two, as Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, this is the one of whom uh, God spoke to Elijah, and he's going to anoint Jehu to carry out this particular vengeance act, which is, I'll explain in a minute, is really an act of God's justice against the evil house of Ahab. And so there's a description of what happens with Joram. They go into battle. Jehoram and Ahaziah. They go into battle at Ramoth Gilead, and Joram is wounded, and he has to go back to Jezreel. Jezreel is a city where Jezebel lives. And then Ahaziah goes to check on his cousin, uh, Joram, to see how he is doing. And he's in Jezreel, which is where Jezebel is, and we see something like you see in those great English mysteries where all of the guilty parties suddenly are brought together in one cape, one place, and God is prepared to execute, execute his, his justice. And so they are there, and after Jehu is anointed by the uh, assistant of Elisha, then he gathers some men around him, and he, uh, set, makes a plan and he heads to Jezreel and this is described in the uh, second part of the chapter and as he approaches the watchman sees him coming and warns uh, Joram that he is coming and he sends out a horseman and and this person then goes over to the other side and then he sends out a second horseman and messenger and he too goes over to the other side so now Joram the king of Israel along with Ahaziah this is in nine twenty one go out to meet. Jehu. And they ask the question in verse 22, is it peace? And Jehu's response is, no, it's not peace, it's war. Uh, Jehoram cries out, this is treachery, and he and Ahaziah, uh, reflecting the cowardice, that they, cowards that they are, turn to flee. Jehu draws his bow, and he shoots Joram in the middle of the back, and, uh, takes him out. Remember, all of this is under the authority of God. So uh, Jehu leads a divinely authorized revolt against uh, Jehoram or Joram of the northern kingdom and personally executes him by shooting him in the middle of the back. Then we see that Ahaziah, who is called also called Jehoahaz, in 2 Chronicles 21:17, as the king of Judah, he goes into hiding. He is scared to death, and he's running from Jehu. And Jehu sends a contingent of soldiers after him with orders to shoot him and kill him, which they do. They seem to only wound him mortally, and he goes to a place near Megiddo where he finally dies. And the Bible says that when he died, they brought him back and buried him in Jerusalem, but not with the kings, and no one mourned him. They were glad that he was dead. This is how evil a person he was. Then Jehu goes to the next stage, the third stage in his cleanup operation, and he heads to Jezreel where Jezebel still lives. And as he comes in, he looks up, and she is up in the palace several uh, stories up, several feet above ground and he looks for some someone who is on his side in the palace, identifies three of her attendants who look out, and he orders that they throw her down out the window. And so they throw her out the window. She, uh, Her beaten, bloodied body uh, falls to the ground. She's killed in the fall, and then her body is trampled underfoot by horses. Now, remember in Israel, uh, the body is treated with respect and is to be buried, but not Jezebel. Her body is going to be so trampled underfoot and bloodied, and then the dogs are going to come, and they're going to devour everything except the palms of her hands. And while this is going on, Jehu and his men go inside the palace, and they have a little banquet to celebrate their destruction of of Jezebel. Now, that's not the end of it. It's only the beginning. We've only seen three people killed so far. At this point, Jehu then sends out troops, messengers throughout Samaria to identify all of the male members of Ahab's family, and he sends messengers to the elders and leaders in the northern kingdom to determine whether they're going to appoint one of these other sons of Ahab to be their king or if they're going to come over to his side. And, of course, they decide that if two kings can't, uh withstand Jehu, then they certainly can't either, and so they say that they'll come over to his side, and so he sends orders and says, well, you've got 70 of Ahab's sons and grandsons uh, that you are protecting. If you're really on my side, then you need to execute them and give me the proof of their execution. And so these elders then take these 70 sons and grandsons of Ahab, and they decapitate them and put all of their heads in a couple of baskets and send those baskets to uh, Jehu. And Jehu builds two cairns, skull cairns, outside the entry to Jezreel as a sign of God's judgment on the house of Ahab. This must have been just a bloody, gory Mess, but it's not over yet. Next, and this is the fifth ev- fifth event in the process of this judgment. Ahaziah, who's the evil king of um, of Judah, had forty two brothers. Now, this was included cousins and others who were in the house of uh, the royal house. Now, remember, when we're talking about Ahaziah of the south, we're talking about someone who is in the line of David. We're talking about someone who is in the line of the seed, and now that brings in all of the promises from the Abrahamic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, that God would never leave the throne of Judah without a descendant of David. And so, but that seed line has been tainted now because of the marriage of Athaliah to Jehoram. And so God has to clean house here. All of this goes back to understanding all these concepts in the scripture related to cleansing and purification in order to serve God. So, Ahaziah's got 42 brothers that, uh, Jehu orders to be executed, and all of them are executed because they are, they have been tainted by the blood of Ahab. Then, we are told, so that takes care of, let's say we've seen Jezebel taken care of, and then Ahaziah. And now, in 2 Kings 10:17, we see the wrap-up statement. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria. It makes you wonder how many are left. All who all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah back there in 1 Kings chapter 19 and then we come to the dramatic finish this is such a work of uh, of subterfuge and drama it is it's worthy of any hollywood production what happens is jehu then gathers the people together this begins in 2 kings 10 verse 18 and they don't know much about jehu he was just one of uh one of the generals that Joram had over his army in Ramoth-Gilead. And so they don't know anything about what he believes, his religious uh, inclinations or anything. And so he comes out, and he acts as if he is going to now have a great time of worship of Baal. And he is going to invite everyone in the northern kingdom to come and worship Baal. And there is this temple to the worship of Baal, and he calls for all of the priests of Baal to now gather together uh, there in order to worship Baal. And for all of those in the northern kingdom who worship Baal, in verse 21 we're told, Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal, And the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And then he says to bring out all of the vestments. I mean, we're going to make this worthy of a Cecil B. DeMille film. We're going to have everybody decked out in all of their finest and all of their ritual robes and everything. And we are going to impress Baal with everything that we have. And he gathers everybody into the temple and then he locks the doors. And then he has a designated hit squad of 80 that he sends in to annihilate every Baal priest and every Baal worshiper from the northern kingdom inside of that temple. And the northern kingdom is cleansed of the sin of Ahab, cleansed of the sin of Baal. And God has brought discipline upon that nation. Why? Because whom the Lord loves... He chastens. Now, isn't that an interesting perspective? You haven't thought about that before, I'm sure. And so all of them come together, and they are wiped out. Now, the epilogue to this is that Jehu doesn't prove to be a righteous king at all. He is only marginally better than Ahab, but he, because he continues to uh, follow in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nevat, the idolatry of the northern kingdom. Of course, that wasn't as bad as Baalism, but nevertheless, it was, it was treason to God who was the uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he reigns in the north for a while, but as the Scripture says, verse 31, Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. So God is using one evil to wipe out another evil. But God is not through with the northern kingdom yet. And now he is going to bring them to another level of discipline. And in the epilogue, in the last four verses, we read, in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. See, that's what he had promised in the covenant with Moses, is that there would be five stages of discipline. And if, if the nation continued in disobedience, then God would increase the intensity of the discipline Uh, to the point that there would be military conquest and even military defeat where the people would be taken out of the land that God had promised to them. And so they began to lose portions of the land. Verse 33, from the Jordan eastward, they lose the Transjordan, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. From Er, Arar, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan, that's the uh, Golan Heights today. And then we're told the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now remember, the key verse for all of this is back in Second Kings nine seven. This is a depiction of the justice of God. In Second Kings nine seven, we read the basic command to Jehu: "You shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets." and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. What is this concept of vengeance? This comes from the Hebrew word nakam. Vengeance in our normal use and language often carries a connotation of a personal vendetta where somehow we have been personally offended or hurt, and so we're just striking back at someone else. That's the idea that you see in the uh, Godfather films. But that's not what this word means when it applies to God. For example, in the uh, theological uh, word book of the Old Testament edited by uh, Archer Harris and Waltke, we read in their definition of nakam, the concept of divine vengeance must be understood in the light of Old Testament teaching about the holiness and the justice of God and its effect on man as a sinner. In terms of the presuppositions of some modern Christian theologians, so-called Christian theologians, such a God of vengeance will be labeled unchristian and unethical. Now, people will look at these events in the Old Testament and say, that's not a loving God, that must not be the God of the New Testament, that kind of thing. Understood in the full orb of biblical revelation, balanced as it is by the mercy of God, divine vengeance is seen to be a necessary aspect of the history of redemption. To understand what goes on here is to help us understand what happens at the cross. In the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology, two statements are made that are helpful. The first is, in the Old Testament, however, the concept of vengeance has a positive connotation both from a semantic as well as from a theological point of view. Vengeance has to do with lawfulness, justice, and salvation. As such, the theme of vengeance takes up an important position in Old Testament theology, particularly in the writings of the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. A couple of paragraphs later, he writes, Divine vengeance is usually set in the context of lawfulness and war, See, God is in a war. It is a cosmic war that began in eternity past when Satan rebelled against God, and human history is just a microcosm of that broad conflict of Satan against God. And within human history, Satan is warring against God and against God's people, and the two objectives of Satan in the Old Testament are, first of all, to block the coming of the Messiah. And so he is assaulting the seed, the seed promise first made with Abraham that in your seed all nations will be, will be blessed. Uh, Galatians 3.16, Paul said that now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as to many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. And so the, the focal point of that promise to Abraham is on one seed Looking forward to that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah of Israel, and then there's the Davidic covenant where God promised to promised to David that his house would not depart from Israel and that he would have an eternal descendant and an eternal throne. So, David, so, so Satan knows that he has to stop that seed. He has to wipe out the house of David. And so what, we have, what have we seen here? We have seen the 42 brothers of Ahaziah killed. We're, we have seen almost the entire Davidic household in the southern kingdom uh, wiped out. And then when Athaliah comes to the throne, she's going to kill whoever is left, but one is hidden, Joash, and he's going to bring a tremendous revival into the southern kingdom. That is the... That is the grace of God, and that is one of the great episodes we'll get to in the next couple of weeks. But what this writer states is important to give us a context for understanding this. Metaphors like God is king, God is judge, and God is warrior play a great part in the Nakam texts. God is king being the overall thought. God's vengeance in the Old Testament can be described as the punitive retribution of God who, as the sovereign king, faithful to his covenant, stands up for the vindication of his glorious name in a judging and fighting mode while watching over the maintenance of his justice and acting to save his people. Passages such as Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three: Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he... God will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance, that is, justice, to his adversaries. Isaiah 124, therefore the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel says, 'Uh, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance upon my enemies. Now what does all of this have to do with the character of God? It shows us how evil sin is if God has to wipe it out in this horrific manner, that it informs us of the horror and the wickedness and the consequences of sin. Sin is not just those little white lies that we sometimes tell or uh, little sins, our little favorite sins that we uh, think really don't have any impact on anyone. I mean, all Adam did actually was he ate a piece of fruit. How bad can that be? And look at the devastating consequences that has had in history. And what we see in the microcosm in this horrific judgment that God brings on the house of Ahab is just a microscopic part of the kind of judgment that God had to bring upon sin when he imputed the sin of the human race to Jesus Christ on the cross. Because sin had to be dealt with by the justice of God. But the justice of God was not in conflict with his love because God judges sin because he loves the human race and because he puts the focus on the victim and not the one who is the one who commits the sin and the one who commits the evil. And so in order to preserve the seed line, to be faithful to his promise to David and his promise to Abraham in order to provide a perfect salvation for the entire human race. It is necessary for God to wipe out the house of Ahab in order to preserve the nation so that eventually he can bring about that so great salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at events like this in the Old Testament and they strike us in terms of their horror and their bloodshed and their violence. But we have to be careful not to interpret them in the light of the human viewpoint thinking of the world around us, but to let our thinking be transformed by his word, recognizing that God has to deal with evil. Evil is a real thing. Sin is a horrific thing that takes place in human history. And he has to do this both in terms of providing salvation for us and in terms of the ultimate defeat of evil in the person of Satan and Lucifer, which will finally come about at the end of the tribulation when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth and casts Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist into the, the false prophet Antichrist going into the lake of fire, and Satan is cast into the uh, abyss for a thousand years. Then he's released for a short time and then finally defeated and sent to the lake of fire. Evil will be judged. That's the focal point of that psalm I read at the beginning. How long, O Lord, will the righteous suffer? They will suffer until God in his plan has worked out all of the details and has resolved all of the conflicts. And then he will bring justice against all of the evildoers. But those who have trusted in Christ have salvation and eternal life with him. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we are thankful that we have the opportunity to think through challenging issues as we have this morning, to look at passages as we have, to recognize that While things can be somewhat simply expressed, there are not a simplification. We are not just simply um, oversimplifying things. That there must be justice, but justice will be executed in your time and in your place. Ultimate justice was resolved at the cross where Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and in your justice you imputed to him the sins of the human race. And while he hung there on the cross, he bore in his body on the tree our sins, and he was punished in our place that we might have forgiveness. Colossians tells us that the certificate of our debt was nailed to the cross, that we might have forgiveness. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, never come face to face with the statements of Scripture that challenge each of us to put our faith and trust in Christ. If there's anyone here this morning who's unsure or uncertain of their eternal life, this is your opportunity to trust in Christ as Savior. Jesus died for you. He died because sin is destructive and evil and that sin cannot ever be allowed in creation because of its destructive forces. And so God took that penalty upon himself and the second person of the Trinity, took your punishment for himself, that you might, by simply trusting in him, have eternal life. That's all that you need to do is believe in him, and you will have eternal life. Father, as believers in Christ, we pray that you would also challenge us with our understanding of your justice and your righteousness and your love as we examine these passages and these events that we may come to a greater understanding of the horrors of sin, the necessity of judgment of sin and evil, and how in all of that it is an act of love from you. This challenges our views on all of these qualities. Help us to understand these things as we think them through. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.